forever. Dog. Comic books, comic time. Writers and artists are on the line. They make a splash as a comic's read and take us on a trip behind the spread. Watch out for comic book commentary. Spinning or winning inside, fix how they got a hot idea. Narrative, character, visual tricks, and onomatopoeia. Uh huh. It's comic book commentary. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Kittleson. I'm the writer and co-creator along with artist Eric Zavatsky of Heart Attack, an original ongoing comic book series from Skybound and Image out November 20th. And we're going to assume for the sake of this recording that the book is already out and uh, you've either read it or you're the type of person who does not mind spoilers. And I will endeavor to relate as much as I can about the background of the book without spoiling the rest of the series for you. It would be really easy to do that <laughs> when talking about the background of the book. And, you know, I'll probably spoil some stuff from, from some upcoming issues, but I'll try not to spoil it too far ahead. Uh, and this book is going to stick around for a while. Uh, Eric and I have been working on it a bit. Skymount has been really gracious and and giving us uh, a full 12 issue order so you can be assured that this book is going to stick around and that the storylines and threads will come to their uh, conclusions in a satisfactory manner that's been conceived from the start and not something that is uh, just an arbitrary hey we're, we're not only going to do this for five issues and then we're going to can it you're going to get a beginning, middle, and end, and you're going to get a full story out of this, which I'm really excited to share. Uh, in part because if you're looking at the cover of the book, and I, I, I hope you read along with me, won't you? Uh, you can see that Eric is bringing a, a style that is all his own to the characters, their performances, his lines, his details, his backgrounds, his layouts, like... There's a depth to the illustration in this book that uh, I cannot say enough how much a fan of it I am. Uh, and I think that's the key is you have to be a fan of your work. It's really important. Um, I'm very humble when it comes to talking about my own contributions. I will not tell you that this is the greatest story. It's going to burn your life down. It's so amazing. Uh, I'm going to tell you, I put a lot of effort and heart into this story, and I hope you enjoy it. I hope it affects you. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about my story, though. That's up to you. Uh, but I will tell you how I feel about Eric's art, which is it is fan-fucking-tastic. I hope I can swear. I will try not to swear too much after that, that one outburst. Uh, in any case... This book is something that I pitched way back in 2014 uh, to Sean Makowitz, who is now the uh, SVP for publishing, and I believe the executive editor, editor-in-chief at Skybound, where I also work as a narrative director for Skybound Stories, uh, which is their games label. Um, and... Uh, this book is not a vanity project <laughs> that I didn't get a job at Skybound and they were like, and here's your comic book series. Uh, I pitched this back in 2014 
long before I, I ended up working at Skybound. Um, and right when I was at the beginning of my freelancing career, uh, and I had just left uh, a great marketing job to take a stab at writing and see if I could ride out the tough early days of freelancing. And I did. Uh, I rode them out and I ended up uh, not where I thought I'd be, though. I, I was I was sort of developing a lot of comics book work, comic book work. And uh, then I got a call to work on Injustice 2. And uh, it, working on Injustice 2 led to Mortal Kombat 11, which brought me all the way up to this year, work-wise. Uh, it created a great, um, a great opportunity for me to run with story on these huge games that would reach millions of people, uh, along with my co-writer, Dominic Cianciolo, on those games. That I had a great time working on them. But they occupied enough time that I didn't get to write comics very much. And that's one of the reasons why Heart Attack took so long. Because it was something that when I pitched it to Skybound, they were very enthusiastic about it. And uh, when I needed to put it on hold for a minute, they understood. Like They would rather have had my full attention on the scripts than demand that I turn the scripts in right away. And why not? Why not wait and keep this thing uh, on the back burner while... I go write a game and then I come back and I'd start working on it again in between games or when I had a, a lull somewhere, which was rare <laughs> because writing a game is a lot of work gang. Uh, but that's why most, much of this was written more recently uh, as especially as we get into the later issues, but the first few issues and the story within them really was written way back in, in 2014. Um, and uh, it took a different shape. The series initially uh, had much the same, exactly the same beginning as what we have now, but it turned into something very different along the way. And I guess as a lesson to young writers and uh, people who are interested in making comics, uh, don't try to emulate anyone <laughs> or anything. And be aware that you may be creating a style within yourself that you don't realize just through your own consumption. Uh, when I started working on this book, I had kind of been, and this I don't mean this in a bad way, but I had sort of read so many big two books and been so absorbed and involved in uh, working at DC Comics and, and uh, thinking of storytelling and, and comic book storytelling in a certain way, in a certain frame that I kind of forgot that there was fine to break all the rules. And when I started working on this, this book, it was my opportunity to say, Oh, I don't need to have a splash page here or there. <laughs> what if I don't want a splash page? What if I just want some panels? And fortunately got an artist uh, and a co-creator in Eric who loves to draw panels and I don't even have to ask for the panels. I, I will, I've always said in any of my comic scripts, and this goes back to anything I've, I've ever written in comics, that the artist uh, always gets preference in the, in the layouts. Like if I suggest a layout in a script, it is merely that a suggestion. And I'm so glad that I have always been open and 
straightforward with that and and not been tyrannical in the way that scripts are executed uh, or in the way that I write the scripts. Because I think, again, you get the best work when you put some minds together. Um, so the first few issues of this, this book were a lot more, um, were, were what they were, right? They were, they were something that wasn't really big to ask. And as the book went on through the first arc, they got more and more actiony, more and more widescreen decompressed and something felt off. And I got a call from Skybound and they were like, Hey, we, you wrote it just like we said in the outline, just like the outline that we all agreed on, but we do think it could be better. And I was like, man, I don't know if I want to rewrite issues now, but I did. And I'm really glad that I did because taking the back half of this first arc and breaking it a second time, but breaking free of the lens of ramping up to all this widescreen action and really taking a closer look at character and relationships that became so much more interesting to me. It made the book more interesting to me and it made it something that I'm more excited to share today. Again, not because I'm trumpeting my own work. In fact, if anything, I'm, I screwed up the first time. Uh, but handling that in the, the best possible way was taking uh, something that felt almost inauthentic and turning it into something that is, I think, undeniably authentic. So um, let's get into the book a bit, shall we? If, uh, if you're reading along, here on page one, we're at uh, East 6th Street in Austin, Texas, where the book is set. And the book is set in Austin, Texas for some very specific reasons that uh, I will not spoil. But if you know your history of Austin, you'll see why. And uh, if you continue reading along in future issues, you'll get a bit more information about that history and some idea of how it all relates to uh, how we got here. But what we have here, are, uh, Charlie North and Nona Shaker, and they are looking at a poster for the Austin VCU, which is the Variant Crimes Unit. Now, Charlie and Nona are both variants. Variants were born in this world uh, as the first generation of children uh, bred by uh, mothers and fathers who had used genetic modification to save themselves from disease during a terrible epidemic that swept across the globe and sort of forced everyone's hand of trying something that maybe wasn't completely proven and tested. And now all their kids, all the kids of those patients who were the first run out with these crazy gene editing technologies that all but eradicated disease from the world uh, and subsequently led to population growth problems that that exacerbated uh, already fragile economic disparities and conditions. Uh, that the children of these these patients 
have DNA that is not quite human and has too many variations. Hence, they are variants. And the United States government, at the time of this story, has not yet recognized the human rights of variants. They exist legally in a dead zone. And it's not that people don't think that variants are people. Most people think variants are people. But according to the law, they don't really qualify anymore. People have been identified genetically in the law now. So how are we going to define people who are not genetically human? And what if these people who are not genetically human have different capabilities or different disease factors or who knows what? Can we trust that variant DNA? So we're living in a world where these kids, they didn't ask to be born variants. They just are. And for the most part, the variants that have the most drastic sort of changes or outcomes, uh, they're never going to be X-Men level in this book. There are not really a lot of X-Men level powers here. This book is way, way, way more low-key than that on purpose. Because um, to me, uh, it, makes, it makes it a little more fun if we don't live in a world where those powers are so regular and ordinary, but where if you did see someone with telekinesis or fire powers, it would be extraordinary. Uh, it's not as extraordinary if there's like thousands of them <laughs> running in an army uh and i love by the way love house of x powers of 10 shout outs for that excellent amazing uh series uh, but but this is not that this is something way more grounded uh and charlie and nona are out to protest the police force that has been specifically assigned to policing the variant population which is uh, politically uh, disenfranchised and thus very aggressive uh, and, and trying to demand uh, greater rights, better, fair rights, equal rights, and um, to not be kidnapped by the police at night. That's, that's all they want. Uh, too much to ask? Maybe. But I don't think so. Uh, so they are... They are using here, as we move on to page two, Nona's using her variation. And this is an example of the kind of low-key powers that we have at play in Heart Attack. She's using her variation to essentially Banksy uh, some this, this poster, this VCU poster. But it creates a glow, right? It emits a glow, and it's not something that she can really turn off. It's her Rudolph effect, almost. As we go down through page three, we see that uh, they're not alone. Uh, and Charlie is the first one to notice uh, that the police are there, the variant crimes unit. And uh, as we get down further along in the next page, you know, we're looking at essentially you know, police shooting someone who's unarmed, but who has this glowing hand. Because they can't trust that glowing hand. And the first draft of this, those were bullets that she got shot with. She's actually getting shot with a stunner, which is why she's still, she's still breathing at the bottom of the page. But initially, they were bullets. She was going to get rocked. This is going to be a much more violent uh, introduction. 
And uh, one of the things that I talked about with uh, my editors at Skybound was just, hey, this is a this is a very bold start. And at the time, this was pre-Ferguson. So this was a very bold thing to imagine, you know, a cop killing uh, someone in cold blood on camera. Because as we see on the next page, Charlie is hiding and he's, he takes video of all this. But like back in 2014, that didn't seem like something that, man, if, if we started having videos like that coming around, if we had all this definitive proof that you know, the criminal justice system was so deadly and biased against a certain class of people, wouldn't we change something immediately? And as time has proven out, no, uh, it wouldn't. So this book took on new meaning. This is what I mean. This book took on new meaning as, as we went along. Um, but they're not using bullets. Because honestly, like at the time that that felt like it was going too far, and in a way, I think we made the right choice because we're going to assume that at some point there is some measure of gun control passed, uh, and it even applies to American law enforcement, and they're asked to use these shock rounds that are non-lethal, mostly. Uh, but that will incapacitate perpetrators uh, instead of massacring them uh, whole wholesale. Um, and that's what's happening here. She's getting stunned and she's going to be disappeared. Uh, and she's not going to appear uh, anytime soon because when in this world, when the VCU takes you, uh, you're gone. Uh, you you disappear. If you're a variant uh, and you have no human rights, you go down a hole that no one knows where that hole leads to. And part of the drama of this book will be getting there. So uh, as we continue on here, we have Jill. Jill is our leading lady, and she is getting ready for her stream where uh, she is an extremely popular host for the Free Bodies who are our most organized, culturally savvy activists in this world, uh, fighting for variant rights and equal rights. Uh, the presence of, of an activist organization that has a brand and uh, a, a sort of corporate mission is something that appealed to me in the sense that I think that a lot of times our better intentions politically and earnestly, instead of getting filtered into action, uh, get filtered into entertainment. And there are so many ways in which we think that we are being active and that we think that we are practicing our, our political ethics and our social ethics, but we're kind of fooling ourselves, aren't we? Because really, we're buying that t-shirt because it looks cool and we enjoy it. Or we're going to that show because it's a cool show. Or we're buying that book because it's a good book. And I mean, this book is guilty as charged in some ways on that because I will be donating any proceeds that I receive from first-year print sales of issues 1 through 12 to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And if I don't get any money in proceeds because the book doesn't sell that well, 
I'll still make a nominal donation uh, to the best that I can when the year comes in because uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center is uh, an absolutely wonderful organization that does the real work that so many of us aspire to do but just don't have the time, don't have the resources, don't have the attention span. And uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center is helping people who are facing situations very similar to the situations that a character like Nona is facing in this book, uh, and that they are helping the people who do not have defenses against the system. They're helping the people who this system has disenfranchised and forgotten uh, or relegated uh, to a lesser place of importance uh, because of economic or racial circumstances. Um, and that is why uh, I think that the book has to have commentary and critique in some ways of uh, the leftist brands as much as the right-wing brands. Because to a certain level, if we really, really practice our principles, it, it requires a whole lot more rigorous work than most of us are willing to put in. And... It's hard out there. I know it's hard, but you got to give something up sometimes. That's why I'm giving up my print proceeds from this book. If, if we get them, I will be more than happy to donate them. Even if the book's a runaway hit, uh, I'll be even happier because I'll feel like I did something good instead of, uh, instead of just entertaining myself. Uh, I'm writing these books to entertain you and writing games to entertain people but this book in particular you know games are not a place to push your agenda games are a good place for everyone to come together i think you can make games that push an agenda but when you're making a game like mortal kombat 11 you really want to appeal to the most people that you can it's really important that we create a common culture that people can come together on and not have everything be so fractured that you can't really enjoy the common culture based on your political persuasion. We have to create a common culture somehow. We have to find ways for people to come together. This book is not really going to hit for the common culture necessarily, because this book has a really sharp point of view. So this book's going to probably veer to the left a bit, but it's not going to shy away from critiquing the left either. I think that's uh, that's super key. Uh, and Jill is sort of voicing some of my anxieties right off the bat uh, in here when she says, you know, is it too much excitement for the T-shirt? Not enough. It's so hard to tell. Uh, just the idea that like is is what she do what she's doing promoting T-shirts and concert tickets for. Uh, for the free bodies is that really helping and she she is someone who has a deep conviction and a desire to help the variants and achieve equal rights and she's kind of frustrated in her position as this entertainment hostess uh, and as we see you know she gets bumped from the air that she's about to be on by Sefton who is the founder and CEO as it says on the next page here of the free bodies uh, and he is a personal friend of Nona Shaker, and he's reporting on what uh, Charlie has seen uh, and taken this video from the, the first pages here. And as we keep going along, 
you know, Sefton is, is giving a pretty thorough breakdown of a lot of the stuff that I just ranted about <laughs> in terms of the politics of the book and where it comes from and why, uh, why it's relevant. Um, and Jill is beside herself because she knows that he's turning it into a promo that he's taking a crisis and using it as an opportunity to sell merch. And the next thing she knows she's on air and she's reading, uh, to sell some merch. And it turns out that she's sh- selling the merch by Nona Shaker, which it's a piece of art that just got made last night. So Sefton's acting very quick here and it just shows his level of savvy and her level of discomfort with that type of activism with the commodification of a tragedy of uh, a human rights issue to sell concert tickets and to sell a lifestyle. And even though that's what Jill does for a living and it's what she's good at, it doesn't mean she's necessarily comfort comfortable with it. Uh, so she's, she's got mixed feelings. As we move along, she's going to Sefton's club which is the spot where all variants hang out and party in East Austin. Uh, and she is determined tonight to see Sefton and get something uh, from him that she has always wanted, which is his professional respect and, a, a, and treating her as an equal colleague. Because so far in their relationship, which we won't get into too much, but they've dated. There's history there. Uh, and she's young and Sefton's got a thing for younger girls. And that's, that's kind of a problem for him. Uh, they, she wants Sefton's respect because she is not just an entertainer. She has things that she wants to achieve for the movement, for the free bodies. And as we see, as the book continues, you know, this book is really about Jill charting her own course and attempting to fight for the free bodies uh, to give them the leadership that she sees lacking in Sefton because Sefton, as we'll get to know him, he's got some problems. He's, he's, he's kind of messed up. He's not the greatest guy. Uh, But in any case, we go into the club. Eric's been doing beautiful job so far. And I think the club is his opportunity to open up and do a little bit of widescreen. His panel work is always so flawless. And Jill and her friends who go by the Free Bettys, that's her like production crew and her BFFs, the Free Bettys, they're all getting getting a, a little bit liquored up in anticipation of Jill's big pitch to Sefton. Meanwhile, Charlie, who this is not his scene, you can tell by the way he's dressed, he's kind of schlubby. Uh, you can tell by the way he's not really enthusiastic about where he's at that uh, this is not where he belongs most nights. And he's going up to the VIP so we could continue along to uh, meet Sefton. And Sefton is a little bit of, uh, I don't know, he, he represents certain aspects of me in some ways. Uh, the me that, that I was in college <laughs> when I was in New York and I spent way too much time drinking vodka in nightclubs. Uh, but he's also, I think he represents aspects of that sort of slick, uh, wealthy, 
young man who just is so sure that he's got everything figured out, uh, but privately doubts that he has anything figured out. And that is going to make him a more complex character than he may at first appear. He's ultra glib in the short term, uh, but he can be cold and cutting in the long term. And uh, you'll see how his past relationship with Jill and his new burgeoning relationship with Charlie comes to play out as we continue uh, through the series. So let's keep going. And so Charlie is here to meet Sefton because Charlie sent Sefton the video of Nona and Sefton really wanted to meet Charlie and bring him in deeper because he thinks it took some balls for Charlie to do what Charlie did. But Sefton really is, is interested in exploiting Charlie for whatever he can. Charlie is not very interested in being exploited. He's also just not very comfortable with any of this stuff. But Charlie's here because he has to be here for reasons that will become a lot clearer once we get into uh, issue two. But for now, you know, we know that Charlie is a kid on the run. That much is true. He uh, he does not want to be locked in with child services as a as a foster child anymore. There are great and amazing foster homes. And then there are kids that get into the system and never get out and have some pretty intense and terrible experiences. So as much as I'm an advocate for for adoption and foster care, um, no thing is a silver bullet. And the systems that we have for foster care in America are in desperate need of reform and improvement because we need to help these kids and do better by them than I think we're doing. So Charlie is trying to get out of that. He's running from it. So he's younger. These kids, by the way, like Charlie and Jill, they're we don't we don't say on the nose how how old they are or are not, but they are you know, they're teenagers. They're roughly seventeen. Uh, and they are meeting now for the first time as Jill comes up to uh, to to the bar here, to the VIP, to make her pitch to Sefton. And this is where things are about to get weird because we haven't really had anything in the way of sci-fi superpowers yet that goes beyond someone having a glowing hand. Um, but when Charlie and Jill meet, it's... Um, it's incredible and intense because everything lights up for them. Like every sense, every cell, every part of their being. It's like a straight up DMT trip. Uh, for those of you who have been fortunate enough to experience a DMT trip, not that I advocate the use of drugs and alcohol and all that stuff, but psychedelics can have very therapeutic properties. I think we can all agree on that. And uh, that is what happens. They have a psychedelic experience the moment that their skin makes contact. And Jill and Charlie are shocked as we continue on to find what's going on here. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> if you touch someone and you had a DMT trip when you touch them, you you would be so lost and disoriented. And uh, that's where they are now. So Charlie's Charlie's on his way out. Jill is going to recover because she's a pro. She's she's so pro. She recovers and she makes her pitch, which is that she stole something from Sefton, something that Sefton 
did not want anyone to steal. And she did it to prove that she has the tactile telekinesis, which means she has to be kind of touching something in order to manipulate it. Uh, she wants to prove that she can use the same skills to break into the VCU's precinct locker and get all the body cam evidence for all of the people who they've been kidnapping and disappearing uh, without any account. And Sefton's like, you do that and you're going to get caught and they'll martyr you and they'll charge you and whatever. And uh, you'll, you'll pretty much screw the pooch. By the way, your sister will suffer too, which is a thing that we haven't met Jill's sister here yet, but Jill's sister is very important to her and is one of the reasons why Jill hustles and works as hard as she does. But Sefton basically admonishes her for having this idea of breaking into the VCU precinct. He thinks it's a great way to, to create a total war between the VCU, who are already aggressive enough. Why do we want to kick that hornet's nest when there are more productive things we can do? To Jill, those more productive things are really just profitable to Sefton, and she's not really seeing the benefit of the movement as it is. So she's pissed off, and she's she's realizing, like, I was off my game. I could I should have recovered from that. I should have done that. It's that motherfucker who, who touched me and gave me that weird trip thing. Who the hell? What the? So she goes after Charlie, and when she slaps him, it's when we get it again. DMT trip. And Eric did such an amazing job drawing these these visuals of just every cell in their bodies lighting up on, on contact. Like, they are connected. There is some weird, wild stuff going on whenever they touch. But, of course, she's smacking Charlie real hard. They're both getting this trip. They're falling off their game. Charlie is knocking into someone and spilling a drink. And, of course, the person that he's knocking into is Rom, who we'll later find out this is... This is Sefton's security guard. He'll be around a bit more in the series. So Charlie's just knocked into this guy. He doesn't like being knocked into, so he he whacks Charlie, beats him up a bit, and then Jill steps in, and she's getting an idea of what's going on because she is, again, Jill is the pro. Charlie is very much the beta. You can call him soy boy beta cuck as much as you want, but he is the beta, and that's part of who he is. That's, I'll tell you what, I've been beta in my life sometimes. It's okay to be beta sometimes. Sometimes you got to be alpha. Sometimes you're the beta. That's life. Jill is the alpha in this relationship. And that's why she's standing up tall like the letter A. And she's saying, take my hand. And meanwhile, she's getting some very crude comments from Rom. And that's why she's going to blast him with not tactile telekinesis, but full-on telekinesis in a splash page. Ayo! Uh, that's a superhero as we get. <laughs> and Charlie has a little bit of fire going off on his hand. He is not as in tune with his body and his mind as, as Jill is, but he is also feeling some pretty strange effects from the contact between them and this sort of power that it generates. So Jill is realizing like, oh, I've got, I've got a battery that gives me superpowers. Charlie's just freaked out. He's trying to get out of here. So they, he's running. Jill is running. Her friends are telling her, do not do this. You can't go running after some man in the middle of the night. They don't understand what she understands, which is that this guy's got the power. So she's following him. She's chasing him. They're going to come to a place. They're getting close to the wall. Jill's taking those shoes off because you just 
you can't run in heels. That was also very important to me. Like Jill needs to take the heels off before she goes climbing this thing. She can't be running around in heels. Uh, they find someone who threw a brick at a squad car. And this, this boy is in trouble. And Charlie wants to get out of there. And because it's that kind of book, you know what Jill wants to do. She does not want to leave. She wants to grab that hand. And she wants to take the cops for a little ride. So as we go on, like our boy is pretty sure he's about to get stunned and disappeared. And instead, the cops are straight up flipping and flopping and vomiting in zero G. As we go to our final splash page to find Jill and Charlie with a full on flame hand now. So like, what's going on here? This is where we'll peel it back a little bit. And then we'll wrap it up because this is getting long enough. What's going on here is in a world where two people who have not had the power to change anything because they have these strange variations that people brand them for and, and, and mark them as less than human for, but they don't have power. And whenever they touch, they do have power. And we're going to find out how that deep, deep, crazy connection that they feel when they touch, the power that it generates, how it affects them, how it affects the VCU, how it affects the free bodies, how it affects their friends, and even how it affects their families. And this first issue is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what Eric can do, because I think he, and he even said, like he drew this issue and as he started into issue two, as he got more and more comfortable with the series, he gets into some crazy, crazy layouts. Like he does some stuff that you've just never seen. Uh, or if you have seen, you've probably seen stuff in some way like it, but you have not seen it done with the sort of quality that he is bringing in terms of the performances and the pacing and the symmetry and the understanding of how you are going to scan the page and an appreciation for those smaller moments between characters that pass. And I think, I think it's something incredibly special. So that's the end of issue one. We've got some back matter cause I love back matter. Like when I buy a book and it's got some good back matter, it makes me happy. It makes me feel like somebody loved, this world and loved this book enough to, to give me a little bit more of it, even though the story's done. And to me, it's also a great storytelling tool because writing for games and stuff, you write all kinds of different texts and there are different ways that you tell stories. It's not always in a cinematic scene. So you try to find ways in your environment to tell stories. You try to find ways with a poster on a wall to tell a story, but I wanted to have some of that here. So you're seeing as you, you go to the back of the book, uh, some things like the Free Bodies HQ web website, as it would appear on these sort of like sheet glass panels that people use in this future, where our phones have sort of just been they've they've gone down to just a little sheet, and it's really just something for you to hold, and you've got AR contact lenses. Anyway, it's complicated. Got another uh, the A and M uh, news. Uh, which is sort of our CNN type place, if you can't tell. <laughs> uh, and we've got a great article here 
uh, about the death of the doctor who created the genetic modification tech that led to the rise of the variants and a, a bit of story about him in which you, you sort of find your way through uh, his, his, uh, his life and you learn a bit about the larger circumstances, the kind of global circumstances that affect our far more personal and private story in Austin, Texas. Uh, true story, the, the name of the writer, Andy Aquilano, is named after two of my best friends, lifelong, my, my, my best man, uh, Andy Futter, and my best bud, uh, Steve Aquilano. So pretty, pretty sweet that I'm able to include a little nod to them. There's lots of little nods here. Even the name Derek Plitt, named after my friends Derek Taylor Kent and Jeff Plitt. Uh, with whom I, I wrote a screenplay for a horror film called Naughty about the Krampus demon. You'd love it. Uh, finally, we got a text conversation between Face and Jill, mostly just Face. Uh, and it's it's sort of leading us towards issue two, which is, you know, Jill, you ran off in the middle of the night with this boy. Like, what happened? What's going on? Her friends are freaking out, uh, as they should. And that's it. That's that's the end of our first issue. And that's 40 minutes. I think that's plenty long enough. Uh, maybe we'll edit this down a bit. But in any case, uh, I hope you enjoy Heart Attack. It's a book that we've put a lot of uh, our heart and soul into. It's got a lot of thought behind what's going on in it. Uh, I think it is a book that has political implications, but it is not a book that you have to enjoy for its politics. It's really about the relationship between Charlie and Jill. And uh, if you enjoy a book with a political point of view, then I hope you enjoy this. And if you don't enjoy this point of view, uh, I hope you at least enjoy the human element of the story and that you get something from it. Uh, because I think, uh, it, again, it's not written to be this like leftist screed. Uh, it's written to be something more humanist than that. I don't believe that people are inherently left or right. And I don't believe that just because you love the police that you have to believe in their infallibility or that because you love freedom uh, that you are you know, in some way, shape, or form worse than someone who loves uh, the rule of law. I think we can all have different values and different levels and shades, and we can share them, but we can come together knowing that we do greater good and build a better world by collaborating than we do by seeking conflict and retribution. Uh, so that's my screed. <laughs> You're probably like, get it over with. But I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you come back for some more issues as uh, Charlie and Jill explore the deeper implications, the physical implications, the uh, emotional implications of this bond that they share. And I hope you come back, if not for the story that I wrote, uh, for the incredible artwork that Eric Zavatsky is, is drawing. And uh, you will see as we go along just how much the panels and the pages themselves reflect the mind and and the emotional interiors of our characters and it's just really brilliant work and i'm excited to share it all with you so that's it i'm sean kittleson i've been sean kittleson i'll continue to be sean kittleson 
And I hope you took something from this. Cheerio. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. And mastered by Anna Rubinova. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. (coughs) Pew! <coughs>